If you cut into that area of someone's life, if you do anything to restrict, repress, um, uh, put boundaries on that specific area of their life, you have now carved into uh, their fulfillment in life, you know, that, that whole authenticity thing. You are taking away from them, from who they are, from them living their fullest life if you are to take any, any of that away, if there's going to be some kind of restraint in that regard. Um, and of course, thanks to uh, Freud, we're seeing the fruit of the concept that sex is foundational to human happiness. Uh, it's, it's not only connected to personal happiness and marriage, it's, a, it's public, it's political, and it's connected to identity. And another, another quote, but I think I'm going to keep moving if I'm going to leave any space at all here. So hopefully you can see the huge leaps that are taking place. Philosophical concepts that move from Descartes to Marx to Freud have come home to roost in our day right here. This is Rousseau's inner feelings are authentic with a sexual twist. In other words, I am authentic when my sexual desires are given freedom and are without interference by corrupt external influences. See how it's basically the same concept? Insert sex. I am only fulfilled and I am only authentic if my sexual desires are giving all the freedom that they want without interference by corrupt external influences. So the result is that the sexual ethics of virginity, chastity, modesty, monogamy, they're not only antiquated, those are not only like some kind of weird, prudish, Victorian, you know, outdated principles, those now are actually oppressive and dehumanizing. If you try to tell me, you know, if you try to tell me that I have to be married or that I have to be heterosexual um, or that I have to be monogamous, um, you, you know, how dare you? How dare you put that on me? And now you're guilty because you're part of that corrupt external influence. The world has learned how to weaponize this whole thing by judging others for how they respond to a person's sexual desire. So in other words, somebody else says, I am making public my passions. And if you don't affirm my passions, you are oppressing me. Now, yes, that is correct. Now, they are an external force that are corruptly, and how dare they? Correct. So let's look at God's word. Let's see what God has to say about these things. Here's a question. Okay, be ready to move around. Before we, before we read the... Here's a question. Why did God include a prohibition against adultery in the moral law? In that Exodus list there. Why, why is number seven, I believe? Why is number seven there? Adultery. Anyone want to... Okay, okay, hold on here. Let's get you on the, on the record. It goes to our identity, you know, our true identity. Right. You know, I, so the, the world's saying that if you say I can't pick my identity is oppressive, saying that you can pick your identity is oppressive. Right. It's oppressive because 
when you go to creation, which testifies to who God is, and the highest point of creation is man, mm -hmm. and God created man male and female, then to deny that is the highest rejection of yes. God's light. It's the highest oppression and suppression of the truth. I would even add to that, Rob Roy, that it is a distortion of who God is. So it's not just how God has made us and how that is a rebellion against how God has made us, but it's a rebellion against um, recognizing the identity of God himself, who is faithful, who is true. Some people say, why do you even care about it? Because it's a gospel issue. You go to Ephesians 5 and the mystery of the gospel, and you're talking about marriage, right? Would we say that the Lord's Supper is no big deal or that the Lord's Day is no big deal? Those are, those are, are, are symbols that provide light toward the truth. You know, if someone did something to my marriage ring and insulted it or destroyed it with the intent behind it, it's very clear what that's connected to. Yes. There's bigger things at play here. And so it is a big issue. It's a huge issue. Um, and it's not like it's something Jesus was silent about, which a lot of people speak to. Jesus spoke to it in Matthew 19, and he went right back to Genesis. And you can see how this is at odds with what the current sentiment that, that, that sexual fulfillment is how must goes hand in hand with fulfillment of life to personal identity. It's basically the tail wagging the dog because God's word has said that you it must take place within these confines. Now I'm going to ask a question that I will answer because I'm going to avoid making it uh, more awkward than things maybe already are, um, which is does Scripture have anything to say about the uh, about whether or not, you know, sex is intended to be enjoyable? The answer is yes, and the answer is yes. I mean, the most direct correlation is the Song of Songs, that within the confines of marriage, it is, in fact, a beautiful thing. It's an aspect of a healthy marriage, but what it's not at any point in Scripture is connected to the person's identity. God's word says this is why it exists. This is where it belongs. Here are the boundaries within it. Enjoy. I have given this to you as a gift. However, this is something that you do. And, of course, it's a reflection uh, uh, in the, um, uh, you know, the Christ and the bride and things like that. You know, you can get theological with it. But it's not your identity. You know, fulfillment in that area, God is not saying, hey, you, if you're not fulfilled in this area, that it somehow uh, diminishes your identity. In fact, what we see is in uh, account after account, story after story, is that when that, that um, act is taken outside the boundaries that he has provided, it is wildly detrimental. I mean, just story after story of adulterers and, and, you know, all kinds of horrible sexual sins that take place and then the repercussions that happen after that. 
you want to, it's a reflection of the person's identity because of them exercising their passions instead of denying those passions. And of course, uh, probably the most, uh, you know, or one of the easier examples is, you know, David and Bathsheba. I, I mean, my goodness, the guy decided to do, he decided to follow his passions and to let him down the road of taking another man's wife, of killing one of his mightiest soldiers, of, um, I, I mean, of, of ongoing intentional lies that had to build on each other. I mean, the sins just immediately mount up because they did not, because they were not contained within the boundaries that God set. Okay. Oh, I'm seeing hands. Okay. Um, uh, I was <clears throat> going to comment on, I think in particular, the first Peter passage um, hint, it talks about it, but in general, we've been talking around it, which is, um, I think maybe some of the mistake of the church in the past has been to um, claim that our nature and our natural passions are correctly aligned and that it is nurture or it is the environment that distorts that over time um, as opposed to acknowledging no you do have passions but they're they need to be repressed or they need to be conformed um, and so I think I think that's as the church is now potentially recovering or experiencing repercussions of some of that dialogue. Now, I think we've seen the over-adjustment of churches trying to be overly accepting of internal path. Yes, we acknowledge you have a internal desire for someone of your same sex, and now they're allowing that, and that's okay. Whereas the dialogue the past was before is like, no, that something must have been done to you as a child or like some external force caused that desire to happen that couldn't be natural because, you know, that's not the way God designed us. And yet, because of sin, clearly there are internal natural passions, but the conforming of those passions Correct. to the holiness of God is where then I think we as a church uh, obviously struggle. And some of these, maybe not as much some of the... Um, uh, things like sexual identity as much, but for sure the arguments and justifications around um, identity and pornography and things like that are pervasive in the church. So anyway, just thinking this through, it's been, I think, even thinking through the church's history on their approach to these things was deny, deny, deny. There's no way this could be a natural passion, something right. internal to you. And um, if anything, all along, probably the dialogue should have been, okay, regardless of your passions, this is what we are called to be. Correct. So to your point, PJ, um, we see this play out in David's life, you know, because he was called a man after God's own heart, right? He's exalted as, a, as an exemplar of someone who follows God in scripture, right? Um, and his Psalms guide us in how to approach God and how to worship God and the right disposition we carry before God, all these things, but yet he had to suppress his passion. It was there, clearly there. Excellent. Uh, and this all leads to, uh, to what Bethany's about to read here. I, I wanted to close with this is that it isn't 
just just to clarify, it isn't that God, and I think this goes to, to some of what PJ was getting at, what we need to make sure we understand and communicate is that it isn't that God is saying, I'm going to remove this because I don't want you to be as fulfilled. That's already the wrong perspective. That is not where fulfillment comes from. It is an aspect of your life that God has given to you as a good gift within the right boundaries. However, that is not your identity. So then the question is, okay, so what is our identity? Where do we gain that fulfillment? And I think a beautiful picture of what it is to have that fulfillment um, of meaning personal fulfillment and is that is that when we curb those passions, we see what God is doing in our life and specifically in the imagery here in Psalm 1 that, that the fulfilled person is, is like a healthy tree, right? So Bethany, why don't you go ahead and read and I, I think this will be a, a good climax to this. Go ahead. Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits at the seat of sinners, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields its fruit. All that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that in the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Okay, so the way of the wicked gives full vent to their passions. The way of the righteous demonstrates um, discipline, meditates on God's law, and then he is like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Help us to think rightly about these things. Help us not to be shocked by the sinfulness of sinners, the worldliness of the world, but instead, Lord, help us to always be able to view these things through a biblical prism to see that, of course, the thinking is going to be this way because, frankly, if we were left to ourselves, if we were not your children, we too would join in this thinking. We too would... um, live guided by our passions. The tail would be wagging the dog, but instead, Lord, we know that it's your word that gives us uh, your truth so that we can know how to love you best, Lord. May you help us to control our passions in a godly way and to be the model of Christ and to bring the gospel to a confused and dying world. In Christ's name, amen.